Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, this is a this is a great morning for me. I get to introduce you again. Some of you guys know him, some of you guys don't. A lot of you don't. Ken Nabby is a guy who uh, is a giant in my life. Uh, for 12 years when I was on staff at Community Church in Fond du Lac, Ken was my senior pastor. Uh, he's a mentor to me. He's shown me just a lot of what it looks like uh, to be with people, to listen, and uh, also to lead. I learned a ton from him. Ken is now our district executive minister, or if you don't like getting your tongue tied, you can just say president, district president in Converge. He oversees all of our Converge churches here in Wisconsin and the UP. Uh, so the guy's traveling a lot, connecting with churches, and just opened up um, a morning to come and spend with us, to worship together and be able to open up the Word and share about the heartbeat of Converge. We're a Converge church. It's an alliance we've made, a partnership that we've jumped into to say we believe in this. And uh, there's like a community confession to say I, I'm, I think it's fair that maybe a good number of you don't know that we're even a Converge church and this is news to you, okay? We need to fix that. And then a lot more of you might say, okay, I've heard that we're Converge. I'm not even sure what that means. Um, so Ken is here, and he's going to teach all of us uh, the heartbeat of Converge that comes out of the Bible, that comes out of God's heart. Um, I'm super excited to have him here. Would you welcome Ken uh, with me this morning? Thanks, Ralph. I want to say thank you. Uh, for your leadership in my life. Thank you for your guidance, for the way that you taught me, um, and for your continued leadership in our network and just the way you uh, are bringing, I think, stability and growth in a way that as God leads. So I'm really grateful for you to be here this morning and open it up. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. I love your senior pastor. He's a great guy. Uh, I remember when I was his pastor and uh, we were building kind of a, a teaching team and I let Pastor Shannon speak. Um, and instantly, I, I had a couple of observations. One was, okay, this guy is going to be a leader of leaders someday. And uh, I remember saying to him, man, you got more natural presence as a young preacher than even myself included as a senior pastor. Like, it was fun to see this potential. And then as I watched him grow and develop and mature and on occasion challenge me, most of the time appropriately. <laughs> I knew, okay, this guy is, he, like, he wants to be in the driver's seat, and yet he was humble and hungry. And So I, I need you to know I love your senior pastor. I love his wife. They're a great family. I knew Shannon when they had no kids and when he had hair up here and not just here. <laughs> so it's really an honor for me to be here. Uh, I love him and Leslie and, and their family. Uh, on my refrigerator at my house, I have a, a picture of my grandparents. Uh, I keep this picture there as a reminder to me of where I came from. My grandfather immigrated from Turkey. Uh, my grandfather's full-blooded Turkish. My last name, Nabi, really is Nabi. And uh, they came to America. They were Muslim, and they were looking for a better life. I never met my grandfather. I met my grandmother before she passed away. I keep this picture on my refrigerator as a reminder of where I came from, who went before me and made what I now enjoy uh, possible. My father gave his life 
to Jesus as a young man, and that has been passed down to me. And I say that because all of us at some level stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us, don't we? I think about that in my life personally, but I think about that as well in our churches. All of our churches, uh, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of people who were before us, who had history and commitment and sacrifice and investment so that now today we get to enjoy the result or the benefit of that. And you are building a foundation that one day other folks are going to stand on your shoulders and look back to this era and say, man, I'm so grateful for those folks that called DR home and invested and sacrificed and, and pulled together. And there'll be another generation that will enjoy the benefit of your sacrifice and your investment. And in some ways, you need to be reminded, and part of why I'm here today, is there's 125 churches around Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We call it Converge Great Lakes. That's the district I work with. They are a part of our family. They're, they're the picture on our fridge. And maybe you've never met them. Most likely you won't ever meet hardly any of them on this side of eternity. But they're going ahead of us. And they're partnering with us. And they're helping build a foundation so that one day the next generation will say, I'm so glad for their sacrifice, for their investment, for their partnership. We locked arms together. And so I stand here before you today as a representative of that extended family, the 125 churches of Converge Great Lakes. We pray for you. Thank you for uh, allowing your senior pastor to be a part of our leadership team. I asked Shannon if he would uh, join uh, my board of overseers, and so he just met with me this week, and we had a, a variety of things that we were planning and sorting through and praying through as a district. And so I just want to remind you, you, you have family that you've never seen that you've never met and likely will never meet, but they're there and they're locking arms with you, planning that which is uh, the next generation is going to enjoy. And so that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be reminded. Pastor Shannon asked me if I would uh, bring the message this morning and I, I want to talk to you about hope because I think, I think it's so relevant in our culture today. A couple of years ago, I was watching a reality a television show, which often seems far from reality. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was called Alone. I think it's on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, and um, I'd never seen it before. The, the concept of Alone is they take 10 people, and they take them out to these really, really remote regions where they can't ever see anybody else. They drop them off with very, very, very minimal resource and they have to see if they can survive off the land. And the goal, while you're there surviving, is to see who can last the longest. That is, who taps out first, second, third, who lasts to the longest, and they win a half a million dollars if they survive. And so the series is called Alone, and the video cameras uh, document the struggle for survival, just getting shelter, just finding food, surviving the elements. But there's two parts to the show, uh, just surviving and then being by yourself all alone without anybody else around, not knowing how long this difficulty will endure. Of those two challenges, what do you think is the greater struggle? 
living off the land and surviving, or being by yourself. The name of the show reveals the greater struggle. My teenage son just said to me today, hey dad, I, I learned this week, did you know there's a difference between being alone and being lonely? I said, yeah, it's a great difference, right? And so in this show, the urge to tap out is always there when it's really, really hard. I think the developers of the show have discovered what we've known for a long time. When life is hard, when there's lots of struggle, when the pressures are pushing in on you, you find out really who you are on the inside. Ever feel like tapping out? Man, I have four boys. Pray for me. <laughs> I'm raising four boys, and I'm telling you, it is difficult raising boys in our culture to fight for their purity, to manage technology. My 10-year-old son thinks he needs the latest smartphone, and I'm the only parent that won't let him have one. You know, just, just the, sometimes you just go, I'm so tired of swimming upstream. I'm just going to go along to get along, and I tap out. You ever have that urge to tap out? Maybe it's in a relationship, dating, marriage. Maybe it's in business. Maybe it's in some family network or something, just that craving to go, I'm done. We all have it. And I want to talk to you this morning about hope. That as life pushes in on you, sometimes in the quietness of your own head and heart, really making sure you know who you are. The Apostle Paul arguably had just horrendous set of difficulties and trials and circumstances, and somehow... He stayed hopeful through it all. And the verse that we're going to look at this morning points to, I think, the center of what kept him on target. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. We're just going to look at one verse. I think it's going to be on the screen uh, behind me. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. This one verse, I think, is the key to what helped Paul kind of keep it all together. Galatians 6.14 says this. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I want to say to you this morning that the hope-producing center of Christian identity is found in the cross alone. Now, Pastor Shannon, I'm sure, has taught you, anybody who ever teaches from the Bible knows that the context around a verse or a passage, a paragraph, the context that that truth is embedded in is really, really important. And that's true here as well. What's going on in the context is critical. If you know anything about the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts went on three missionary journeys. And in his first missionary journey, he went to a, a region, uh, the, the towns were Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And this region is known as Galatia. And he 
planted several churches there. He endured hardship. He went back to his home church in Antioch. And then he starts hearing about things going on back at these churches that he started in this region called Galatia. And he wrote the book of Galatians. And what he's hearing from them is really concerning to him. What he's hearing is that they've drifted from the main thing. In fact, there was a group of uh, people in that region called Judaizers. And what the Judaizers were doing is they were saying, hey, look, if you want to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you've got to be Jewish first. And in particular, they were saying you have to obey the Mosaic law around circumcision if you want to be a follower of Jesus. And so they were adding things to what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And the Apostle Paul's hearing about this. The context then in the book of Galatians is it's a corrective one. He said, no, wait a second. What, what have you done? You drifted from what I taught you, the main thing. And so there's a biting tone to Galatians 6 because he's taken them back to the center, to the main truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So this is just context here. Let's look at this one verse because verse 14 in some ways summarizes a lot of the book of Galatians. Galatians 6.14 in fact starts with the word but. Uh, but far be it for me to boast. And he's setting himself apart from that which they're currently hearing. He's contrasting himself in this corrective letter. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm going to talk to you about boasting and talk about dying. And I think in the middle we find hope. Far be it from me. It's an interesting phrase in the original language. It really is a strong statement. In fact, if you read in another translation like the King James Version Bible... Uh, he's saying, God forbid, that's how it's translated. It's a really strong statement. I don't want to have anything to do with what these other people are teaching. Far be it from me. They were boasting in the Mosaic law and the flesh and religious routine and habits and things and so forth. He's like, no, 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 no. No, I don't, I don't want to boast in that. Only ever am I going to boast in this. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to boast here? He's not saying you can't be proud. Say to be a mother or a father, a parent, a business owner, a, 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 a whatever your profession might be. It's okay to be proud of those roles and things that you have in your life. What he's saying is there's a, there's a role, there's a sense of self-identity which is over and above all of those things. That is, we would say it this way, you are a Christian first before you're anything else. You're a follower of Jesus first before you're anything else. If you want to boast in something, boast in that. Let me say it kind of practically. 
you are first a follower of Christ before you're a citizen of any country, right? You're a follower of Jesus before you're aligned with any political party. Now, somebody in Madison ought to say amen or something to that, right? You are first and foremost a follower of Jesus before you are anything else. It's the boast above all boasts. It's the thing above all things. It's the way you see yourself, how you self-identify above everything else. Your supreme value, your core sense of self-worth and who you are is found first in Jesus. This is how I like to illustrate it. Depending on when you went to school, there are nine planets in our solar system, right? <laughs> Man, poor old Pluto got demoted, and then I think, I think he made it back on the list, whatever, right? And, and so there are nine planets that rotate around the sun. The sun is the center of our solar system, and it takes planet Earth how many days to make one rotation around the sun? 365. I know it feels like you're in science school again. The, the sun is the center of our solar system. Everything revolves around it. In a lot of ways, what Paul is saying is the cross of Jesus is the sun to our solar system. What happened there, what all that declares to be true is what we orient the whole of our life around. Jesus crucified and resurrected is the sun to our solar system. It's the center of how we think about ourselves. It's the hope-producing center of Christian identity. Now listen, I think part of what Paul would say in the, you read through the whole of the book of Galatians is, if you have anything else other than that, anything as the epicenter to your life, you're adrift. You are not living and thinking and feeling and functioning the way God defines what he wants his followers to be. If anything else is the center, other than Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected, then you're likely not a follower of Christ. It's how I challenge myself with this. It's perfect today because we're going to enjoy communion together. I like to ask this question, what does the cross do to you? Not what does the cross do for you, what does it do to you? And for me personally, when I linger in mentally in what took place, the crucifixion, I have two simultaneous kind of reactions. One is absolute horror and shame. The ugliness of my sin, the horror of my sin, and what it cost Jesus to be tortured to die because of my sin. And I am freshly humbled when I bring my mind to that truth. 
I can't believe how ugly my sin is. And I don't ever want to forget that. Simultaneously, I go, the profoundness of God's grace and his love and his mercy is so rich and, and overwhelming. I, I can't believe the opportunity that I have to be in relationship with God the Father through his Son by faith alone. I have this, this dual response. This is what the cross does to me when I mentally linger. What does the cross do to you when you think about it? It's not just a quaint symbol to put on an earring or a necklace or on the bumper of your car or on the front of your Bible or any number of other things. It is a, it is a symbol that defines and, depart and, and divides how we think and live and find our purpose. Listen to how Paul talks about this same concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says of the church in Corinth, When I came to you, brothers, I did not pro come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament, right? Half the New Testament. I decided to know nothing among you except this one overarching primary theme. Jesus. He lived, he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the grave. And that truth changes everything. This is our boast. Far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my aims in my role as the regional president of Converge Great Lakes is to help all of our churches get really crystal clear on this truth. And, and to make it clear over and over and over again that we preach the gospel to ourselves first. That we remind ourselves of what it is that God has done on our behalf. And then to say, you know, the empty chair in front of me and next to me and behind me bothers me because there's somebody else who needs to hear this, who needs to know this. Anybody have people in your life who you wish were sitting here with you? Right? We want all of our churches in Converge Great Lakes, like DR, to preach the gospel to ourselves first and then have a burden about the empty chair to say, we've got to reach out. We've, we've got to help more people understand how this truth changes everything. It's the sun to the solar system. It's the epicenter of purpose and meaning in life and hope. The hope-producing center of Christian identity is found in the cross alone. I told you I want to talk about boasting. Let's talk about dying. Listen to the verse again, Galatians 6, 14. 
Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is not just only an agent of death for Jesus. It's also a process by which death is applied to my life. Jesus in the Gospels, he's teaching, Luke chapter 9, he says, anybody wants to follow me, he's got to take up his cross daily. Not when you feel like it, not when it's warm outside. Welcome to, from Hawaii. We take up our cross daily. Jesus died to the own urges to be in charge of his own life, and he obeyed the will of the Father. You and I, we die to the urges to be in charge of our life and obey the will of our Savior. That's what it means to die to yourself. In a very real way, you could say those of us who are followers of Christ, we really don't have any rights. We have given those rights over to the Father to say, I will follow you wherever you lead. I will do whatever it is you ask me to do. I will live however it is that you ask me to live. God, through his son Jesus, is our leader. This is what it means to apply the cross, the agent of death to our own life every day. You see, when the cross is properly taken up in my life, it kills the desire for me to act like I'm in charge of my own destiny. The world and its materialistic grab loses traction in me when the cross is applied to my life, to my soul. Now there's a problem here. Right? This, is, this is maybe easy, quaint religious language, but there's a problem. The world has an, a materialistic kind of pull, like a magnetic pull. Let me illustrate it. Anybody wish they had some more money? I'll stand in the front of that line, right? But what the Bible teaches us is that we're to live as if this is not all that there is. There's another reality. It's a spiritual one. It's an eternal one. And we're supposed to live like that one is more important than this one. Right? But man, this world calls to us, does it not? And if you ignore that, you will do it at your own peril. You will fall and stumble and be trapped. Now, I don't know who's in the audience, and so please forgive me if this is offensive. My wife and I are an auto dealer's nightmare. Any car salesman? I, if we have car salesmen, I'm sorry. My wife and I have never bought a new car. We have always only ever bought used cars, and we drive them till they're like almost dead. And then we trade them in for whatever pennies we can get, and we buy another used car, and we drive what we can afford. In fact, we have just kind of quietly determined as a lifestyle that to the best of our ability, we don't ever want to finance a car again. We're just going to buy what we can afford. 
So a couple of years ago, our GMC Yukon, remember I told you I had four boys, got to have space between them because somebody's always touching somebody. <laughs> GMC Yukon, you know, the engine light just stayed on like all the time and other stuff. 240,000 said, okay, let's turn it in. My wife finds um, a minivan because I wanted to work on my masculine identity. We, we bought a minivan and in my mind, it's like this is a cash transaction, right? I come in with the money, I put the money on the table, I sign a piece of paper, you hand me the keys, and I go, right? That's maybe 30 minutes. Uh-uh. So we're there, we're doing the dealership thing, you know how, how it goes, and, and in the lobby is this, I mean, beautiful, fully tricked out truck. I mean, chrome in places I didn't even know you could put chrome. And it's beautiful. And I made a mistake. I opened up the door and I let my 10-year-old climb up in the inside. Now here's the deal. I felt the tug. You know what I mean? I was like, man. The church in Madison would think I was so cool if I drove up in this, right? I felt the pull. And then I saw the price tag and I said, get out of there. You close the door. $47,000 is more than I can do for a vehicle. Now you feel the tug. We all feel the pull, right? And maybe it's not cars. Maybe it's not a tricked out truck. Maybe it's a house in a neighborhood. Right? You drive through the neighborhood and you go, oh, man, if I had that house, my life would be complete. Or maybe it's clothes. I think, man, if I dressed like her, I would be happening. Or maybe it's kids. If I had their kids and they had mine, my life would be way better. Now here's the, there's nothing wrong with a truck or a house or clothes or, you don't want a kid swap, but I mean, whatever, just, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with those things if you can afford them. The problem is when we crave them and we identify with them and they become a symbol of who we are and our worth and value, that's when the world tangles us. What Paul is teaching here is that when we see who Jesus is and what he did, and we apply it to our lives, the world loses its grip by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. There's this exchange that takes place. As I die to myself, the world looks less appealing because I know there's something else that's far greater. And I get tangled up less because I'm less attracted to it and stumble into it less often. Now, if you asked me, Ken, do you want the favor of God and affection in your life, or do you want a fully tricked out truck? I'd say, that's easy, right? I want God's favor and his affection. But man, in the moment, boy, those things have a tug. And so... What we have to do is arrange our lives in such a way that the world loses its grip. We apply the cross to our lives. 
So my wife and I, just as part of our discipleship approach, we say, okay, we're going to give 10% of our income to our local church. And we're going to be faithful. To, we've been married 31 and a half years. You can pray for me or that too, right? 31 and a half years we have for the vast majority of our life, we've given 10% of our income to our local church because we don't want to be tangled. We want to be generous. We support missionaries who are dear, dear friends of ours. I want to be the more generous tipper when I show up in a restaurant. You know, the average waiter or waitress hates the church crowd. We are stingy sometimes, you know. I want to be generous with the people who wait on me. I want to be open-handed with the stuff that I have, and so I loan my stuff to people. Uh, my neighbors are in Peru this week, so I snowblowed his driveway for him. He didn't ask me to do that, just... Snow blow to strike. I, I want to be generous. I want to live a life of open handedness so that this world does not grab me or trip me or tangle me up. I want to own stuff and not have it own me. Make sense? And this all gets at the hope producing center of Christian identity is found in the cross alone. See, here's the deal. If you struggle with loving stuff, then the world is not dead to you. You over-identify with here and now. It goes back to the very first point. What is the thing that you love and identify with and think about yourself? It's, I want to boast only ever in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the process by which the world will be crucified to me and I to the world. And my prayer for all of our converged Great Lakes churches, DR being one of them, is that every one of our churches would get this clear and teach people to live this way and then to be bothered by the open chairs so that we would, we would feel a burden toward the issues in our day. There's a song, I want to wrap up with this. Isaac Watts, back in the 1700s, wrote this song. You may have heard it. It's kind of an old hymn. It's called The Wondrous Cross. I think when he wrote it, he was looking at or thinking about Galatians 6.14. Listen to two verses. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. The truth is, maybe some of you in here, you've been kind of playing around the edges spiritually. You've been, you know, Jesus isn't the center of the plate. He's just parsley on the plate. You know, you, you eat healthy, you exercise, and you go to church. Maybe today is the day you say, you know what? I want to fully surrender. I want to make Jesus the thing that I boast about over everything else. So maybe you just need to do business with God today and say, all right, Lord, I give in, I give up. I want you to lead my life. I want you to be my Savior. Set me free.
Or maybe you're here today and you just fell into the rut of just trying to be good. If, I just, if I'm just good, God will have to bless me. And you've, you've forgotten about that first love where you live because Jesus died for you. You live the way you live because it's the best way to live when he's the son to the center of your universe. Whatever it is that God is saying to you, do it today. Deal with it today. Don't put it off. Don't leave the building. Don't put your head on the pillow tonight without doing business with God. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. On the last episode of season two in Alone, there are two guys left 64 days by themselves. Let me just think about that. Even if you're introverted, that's a long time. And one guy is falling apart in front of the cameras, pounding on the wood and weeping, and he, and he taps. Boom. And the other guy, he's lost 30, 40 pounds. He's content. Like, ah, I think I can stay here a little longer. And I found myself thinking in some ways that's an example of what the two lives that we can live. Right? One where we try to do it on our own and we unravel or we anchor our life on the truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And while it may not be easy, it's a life worth living because it's anchored in hope. I pray today, DR, that you have that clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, how profoundly relevant it is. And we pray this morning, God, that you would rivet this truth about the reality of the cross and what it represents. And that we'd anchor our life around it so that you will be the chief value among all values that we live for. We thank you fresh and anew for Jesus and his love. God, teach us, show us, lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.